Welcome to the CNS Leadership Institute podcast series, where we are discussing valuable lessons learned with leaders throughout the neurosurgical community. I am Dr. Weicho Adagwa, and today I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Holly to the podcast to share his insights on the topic of retaining talent. Dr. Lanson Holly is a professor of neurosurgery and orthopedic surgery at UCLA David Gaffin School of Medicine. He has served as the Vice Chair of Clinical Affairs for the Department of Neurosurgery since 2007. He is Chief of the UCLA Neurosurgery Division, Spine Division and Director of the Neurosurgery Spine Surgery Fellowship Program that he established in 2006. He has a number of clinical interests, including cervical myelopathy, minimally invasive spine surgery, PRE malformation, and spinal cord tumors. In addition to a busy clinical practice, he is also an NIH-funded principal investigator with continuous NIH funding from 2009 to 2023. He currently serves as a co-investigator of an NIH NINDS K-12 award entitled Transition Early Career Neurosurgeons to Scientific Independence. This discussion will be moderated by Dr. Maryam Rahman of the CNS Leadership Institute. Dr. Rahman is an associate professor in the Department of Neurosurgery at the University of Florida, working with the Preston A. Wells Center for Brain Tumor Therapy at UF. She specializes in the treatment of patients with brain and spinal cord tumors. Dr. Rahman is currently a member at large in CNS Executive Committee and has been involved with the CNS Leadership Institute since 2017. She would serve as co-chair of the CNS Leadership Institute in 2022. Thank you, Drs. Holly and Rahman, for sharing your insights with our audience today. Langston, I'd like to thank you for speaking with us today. Uh, based on your experience, what are the biggest dissatisfiers for people at work? Yeah, well, well thank you so much, Miriam, for having me. Uh, this is a great opportunity. I think that uh, probably the, the largest job dissatisfaction is not feeling valued and not feeling appreciated. I, I think that as neurosurgeons, you know, we understand that uh, we're here to take care of patients. Uh, we're here because uh, those of us in academics, we like the research. Uh, we understand that we're not doing it for money per se. Um, and so many of us are willing to have a position where maybe we, we could be making more money doing something else. Uh, maybe even if we pick another field outside of medicine. But the reason why we're here is because uh, we feel like we're doing something that is, is providing uh, a lot of uh, value and, and assistance uh, for others. And in the course of doing that, if we don't feel that what we do, what we've offered, uh, what we are providing is being valued by those who have brought us on, who've hired us, uh, that after a while becomes very difficult uh, to just leave alone. And then also at times, if you feel as though your patients don't value uh, that what you've done for them and, and for their families, uh, between patients as well as those you work with, uh, feeling valued, I think, is incredibly important. So that would probably be my number one. Uh, now, certainly, one could argue that how much you're being paid, if you feel that you're really being underpaid, you could, you could also imagine that that is a sense of being valued, right? Because if you're being valued for your work, then you should get paid for what you're doing. 
So it's hard to totally separate those out, but I will say the overall feeling of being valued is probably the most important. Uh, and then the other thing that I think is important is how do you feel you're, you're growing in the job? Do you feel as though you, you know the way you came in and at the level you came in, are you progressing in your career? Uh, and if the job has some sort of ceiling on you and you feel as though you're not really progressing in your career, uh, I think that's another way in which you become dissatisfied. Uh, and then probably the last one I think is work-life balance. And this is probably more important to uh, the generation that is coming up now, even than my generation of, of neurosurgeons. And for me, it was probably more important than the generation that trained me. Uh, and I don't believe that the work-life balance necessarily starts when you first become an attending neurosurgeon. I think that you've, you're so used to as a resident and as a fellow working hard and being in the hospital for so many hours that this is really your culture. Uh, but many of us will develop, uh, you know, have a family, have kids, have other things that we develop in our personal lives uh, that over time, we really feel as though we're missing out on. And it, it, it usually doesn't manifest right away. This usually takes a little bit of time. The, those are excellent points. And just to follow up on that, how would an institution work on or help people feel valued, you know, besides the salary and have a process in place that would help retain the best talent at their institution? Yeah, so I think that mentoring is incredibly important. And, and particularly when you first start uh, after your training, having uh, a mentor who really is gonna check in on you and have an understanding and, and have that communication where you can let them know about how you're feeling and how you're doing. You know, as neurosurgeons, uh, communicating about our personal feelings are not usually high on our list. Uh, so it does take, you know, kind of a unique uh, set of people around you to be able to, to see how you're progressing and, 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 and talk to you and where you're, you feel open to be able to discuss these things. Uh, I certainly, in, a, in, in an academic environment, I think it's very important for junior faculty to meet with their department chairs frequently, uh, particularly early on, to kind of let them know where they are, what, what they think they're doing, where they're going, and how they want the chair to help them to achieve these goals. You know, part of the challenge is, is that you don't know everything and your own goals will change over time. And so that's why it's important to have frequent communication uh, because who you were when you first came out is very different than who you are, you know, even two, three years later. So it's important to have that, that frequent communication. Have you ever seen a retention process um, go poorly? I've definitely seen it go poorly. Uh, and to, to answer your other question as well, in my mind, the best retention is kind of what you would call a preemptive retention or a prophylactic retention. And that's where somebody in the kind of supervisor role, whether it be the chair or even the dean, you know, depending on what your relationship is, identifies you as someone that is functioning at a very high level, that you're a very important person uh, for the department, for the hospital, and, and, and really in a, in a very uh, selfish way, understand that 
if they lose you, it would be a problem. And in that situation, they don't wait for you to go look for other jobs. They understand your value and will do things to make sure that you're happy and make sure you have what you need. And this can, can include resources for your program, for your research, uh, salary boosting. So that to me is the best retention, which is the preemptive retention. Uh, when it goes poorly uh, is, the, is the total opposite of that. And, I, and I've seen this where somebody's feeling undervalued, they're feeling as though they're not getting the respect, they're not growing all the things that, that we talked about. And so they go look somewhere else. And when they let their chair or the dean or whoever kind of is in that position of authority, when they let them know, the first thing they say is, well, let us know when you have an offer letter from your other institution. You know, And I've seen that. And, and I think that is just terrible because basically what, what it says is, we don't really know how, mu how much we value you. you. You go out and find out how much someone else values you. And then we'll see if we match that, if we think you're worth that much. And, and I've seen that where that happens. And you know what smart people do? They take that letter and they negotiate with that person who gave them the letter and get the best deal they can and then they leave. Because at that point, you already know what they think about you. And you also know what the other people think about you. Um, so when people leave, how do they fare at the other institutions? So, so I think it really depends on the individual situation. The one thing that I've seen many times over, whenever I ask one of my colleagues, hey, how is it at the other place? They always give me the same two answers. It's great and I'm really busy. Everybody says that. That is like, there must be some line that everyone's given when they start a new job because they all say that. Uh, and But we know that's not all true. So it really depends on the reason why somebody left. If they left because they were kind of being pushed out, right? I mean, that happens, right? Um, maybe they were underperforming. Maybe there was some professional issues. Uh, maybe there was something going on that perhaps they weren't doing as well as they could have. In that situation, the, the, the first thing that has to happen is that individual needs to address these issues because there, there's, there's a great chance that if they don't address whatever these issues are, then they will repeat them at the new place. And, and perhaps the new institution didn't know about these things uh, maybe the institution was happy to see them leave and didn't share them. Uh, certainly, they didn't share them about themselves. And what will happen is, is that the same issues that they had will repeat themselves, and then they'll be dissatisfied again. So I think, so you have to really look at why they're leaving. So, but, but let's just say that we have somebody that's functioning uh, at, a, at a pretty high level that was very recruitable, was recruited. Um, there was a retention offered, and they took the, the new offer at the new institution. Generally speaking, uh, I find that those people do generally pretty well uh, because they have done well enough that they were uh, attempted to be retained and they've negotiated a package that now has taken them up a notch to a whole nother level. And it, usually it, it will mean that now they're gonna be even more productive uh, in the OR. They're going to be more productive in the lab. 
they're going to have more papers. They'll, they'll have more fellows or more uh, resources. And whatever good things they had going at, uh, that made them uh, be retained or attempted to be retained by their primary institution, they have those and even more resources to, to magnify that. So I think it largely depends on the situation. Um, you know, the other thing is that sometimes people will leave one position because they want to slow down a little bit. And the other institution might not know that that's their reason. And that doesn't always work out because the other institution is expecting, you know, Dr. X from the last five years who was doing this many RVUs and this many papers. And, and, and but meanwhile, Dr. X has kind of shifted into a different phase of their career. And in that situation, it, it actually works out pretty poorly because there's a disconnect between what the institution had thought they were getting and where this physician kind of is in their career. Langston, I just have one more question, which is how does this potentially change when those in the institution are coming from backgrounds that may be underrepresented in the fields that they're in, whether that's through race, gender, prior experiences, sexuality, things like that. How does the job satisfaction and retention of talent uh, potentially change in, in that type of dynamic? Yeah, it's, so it's, it can be significantly different. Uh, those from underrepresented backgrounds uh, commonly uh, have feelings of, uh, at times, of being out of place, not necessarily having mentors. You know, we mentioned how important mentors are to the whole process. They might not have mentors, certainly not mentors that have kind of walked in their same steps, that understand the, the same issues. Perhaps they can tell you how to write a good grant and, and they can tell you about what they would do for a certain case, but there might be other issues related to being underrepresented in that field that they just don't know about. And they might have every great intention in the world to help you, but that's just not where they are. Uh, so that kind of puts people who are underrepresented in a little bit of a different group. Uh, the other challenge for those who are underrepresented is that commonly you are not really taught how to negotiate. Uh, and, and unfortunately, at times even don't understand your own value. And, and so I have seen people from underrepresented backgrounds who almost by nature undervalue themselves when it comes time to either negotiate or to be retained. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, during the, these times, when they're retained, they might not get everything that they should have, have received uh, because really the, the whole process is opaque. I mean, generally when you're doing a retention, or you're looking at another job, you're not exactly telling everybody, right? I mean, that's not what you want to do. You kind of want to work on this in, 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 in kind of in a way in which uh, there's not too many people involved, because the more people involved, it, it just makes things potentially a little more problematic. So you may not be getting the advice that you need. You're not talking to people about it. You're doing this on your own. Um, and you're from a background in which some of us may suffer from imposter syndrome, you know, where you're not totally convinced with every fiber of your body that you deserve everything everyone else does, even though you do. It's a bizarre phenomenon, but it's a very true, true one. 
And so this can manifest during that time period. And so uh, those from underrepresented backgrounds are at particular risk uh, for being in a kind of in a bad position uh, during this process. Langston, thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts on this. I, you know, it's actually very interesting, especially, you know, you talk about the, um, you know, inability to negotiate. I was sharing with somebody recently that if I had to negotiate, like, I think I would die of like an MI or something, you know, I've never done it. And I don't, I don't know that I would ever know how to do it. Um, but I think, you know, discussions of these types of issues that oftentimes neurosurgeons don't discuss plainly are helpful. And I hope uh, the audience enjoys um, what you have to share. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it.